Well, let's dive in. We're going to be reading from Judges chapter one to three today. So we're starting in a brand new book. And let's start with our um, memory verse for this month, John 8, 28 to 32. So if you want to grab it, put it in front of you, you can read it along with me. Such a powerful verse. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So, so good. Let's take a moment and open in prayer today. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for the body of Christ, your bride, and God together as a heartstrong community. Our desire is to truly become your disciples, to know the truth and for the truth to set us free each and every day. As we learn from the book of Judges today, God, we respond humbly, uh, recognizing our own wayward ways. And Father, we ask you through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to our hearts and transformation to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's dive in. I'm going to start with a little bit of an overview of the book of Judges since we're into a new book you will see that Judges chapter one and two are uh, repetition. They're um, repeated stories from what we've already read in Joshua. So it looks like the authors are just flashing back and sort of setting the stage for this book, pulling some of the same stories into the beginning of Judges as we set the stage for the book. So the name of the book of Judges refers to the 12 Judges of of God, the 12 judges that God was going to establish during the period between Joshua and Samuel to attempt to lead God's people back to him. And so when you think of the word judge, think like a military or a civil leader more than a judge that you would find in court. The book of Judges spans a period of about 400 years. If you added up all of the length of time that each of the judges were in power, but many scholars believe that these stories actually overlapped each other. So some of them taking place simultaneously in different parts of the country. And so it could have been as little as just under 200 years. So somewhere in the range of between 200 and 400 years. The author of Judges is unknown, but some believe that Samuel could have written a lot of these stories. The theme of Judges is the downward spiral of Israel's nation and, and spiritual life, national and spiritual life, into chaos and apostasy, showing the need for a godly king to lead it. Now, apostasy, you're going to hear that word a few times, and it means the falling away, rejecting, or withdrawing from faith in God. The major problem for Israel during the period of the Judges was its continual turning away from the Lord toward the gods of the Canaanites. Now, what was it about this Canaanite religion and culture that proved to be such an irresistible attraction? The land of Canaan was awe-inspiring to the Israelites. 
as it can be seen in the story of the spies who reported on its wealth and strength from Numbers 13, to a recently freed slave people accustomed to the hardships of life in the wilderness, the cosmopolitanism and material wealth of the late Bronze Age Canaan with its large urban centers could not have failed to impress. The Canaanites were clearly superior to the Israelites on many levels, art, literature, architecture, trade, political organization, and more. It's not difficult to see how the Israelites would have been tempted by the elaborate Canaanite religious system, which supported and even provided all of this. One prominent feature of the Canaanite religion was its highly sexualized orientation. The system of sacred prostitutes, priestesses of Baal, allowed people to combine sensual pleasures of worship of Baal. This undoubtedly was attractive to many Israelites. And we see in Numbers 25, the Israelites being seduced by the Moabite women. But a question I have for us to think about as a result of this is, what is it about our Western culture today that proves to be such an irresistible attraction for the people of God today? What are the lures and the temptations that lead us away from Jesus as Lord? A couple of the key themes that we see throughout Judges is Israel's existence in the land, which was promised by God, was threatened by its continuing apostasy. Israel had not conquered the land completely, which is what God told them to do, and its unfaithfulness was to blame. Therefore, the day would come when the nation would be taken captive away from the land. Another theme, number two, the oppressor, the oppressions, chaos, and generally negative picture in the book are due to Israel's repeated sin. Time and time again, the Israels broke the covenant, turning to the Canaanite gods and generally doing evil. And as a result, they repeated and suffered the consequences of that. Number three, God's faithfulness was the counterpoint to Israel's apostasy. Despite Israel's repeated falling away, God continually delivered his people. Now, this was not due to Israel's merits or repentance, interesting, but to God's compassion and pity and his promises to Abraham and his descendants. And so another question to ponder for us is, are we forgiven as a result? Are we forgiven our sin as a result of our repentance or as a result of God's mercy and faithfulness alone? Judges should help us to reorder again that our salvation and our continual forgiveness is all thanks to Jesus, the cross, and his gift of grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Number four, the judges did little to arrest the downward cycle of apostasy. If anything, they accelerated. Major judges such as Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson were guilty of significant sin. And the shining exception, of course, was a woman named Deborah. Shout out to all of my ladies out there. (laughs) Go, Deborah. (laughs) And number five, Israel needed a godly king to lead in doing right in the Lord's eyes rather than a leader who did what was right in his own eyes. God had promised from the beginning that there would be kings. And he even had explicit instructions about what a godly king would look like listed in Deuteronomy. The book of Judges shows the chaos and apostasy to which the people of Israel descended in the absence of a godly king. In my notes, there's going to be a list of all the names of all the kings and how long they served for, if you're interested in that.
So there was this pattern that's introduced in the book of Judges, and it shapes the plot of Judges. And we're going to see this pattern happen again and again and again. And the pattern is this. The Israelites do what's evil in the sight of God. Then God allows the nation to be conquered and oppressed by a neighboring nation. Then the people cry out to God. And then God sends a judge to deliver them. And then the cycle repeats itself again and again and again. And even though these judges had severe flaws, four of these judges are mentioned among the heroes of faith in the book of Hebrews. And so while Judges portrays the worst with regard to bad behavior, such realism was included to reveal something important about life and human nature apart from God. So as we dive into some of these very grotesque stories, (laughs) some of them are very detailed and grotesque, we have to remember that this is what happens when we turn away from God in our, in our humanity. As we begin to dive into the chapters today, I want you to listen to some of the titles of the chapters that we're going to read today. And I want you to watch for any of these patterns happening in your own life. So the first title we're going to see is the continuing conquest of Canaan. So they fight to conquer the land to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Then we see the failure to complete the conquest. They let some of the inhabitants stay. They have some successes, but they settle in the land with the people who are not of God and who do not worship God. Israel's disobedience. God reminds them of his covenant promises and then rebukes them for making their own covenants with the inhabitants of the land. And the consequences are bitter. Their enemies will remain in the land and they will be a thorn to their side. Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord and serves other gods. The Lord raises up judges. The Lord makes a way out of the oppression and the bondage that they have got themselves into through the judges. So this is what we're going to cover in today's reading. Let's dive in. We're going to start at Judges 1. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but we are going to read a few portions. So we're going to start at verse 1. So these first couple of chapters are, again, as I said before, repeating some of the events that we've already read in Joshua. So you're going to, they're going to sound familiar. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites and fight against them? I love that right at the beginning of the book, again, it's stated that they inquired of the Lord. So this people were in a position at this time, at the beginning, to be interested in what the Lord is saying and wants to follow what the Lord is saying. Verse two, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given this land into your hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. 10,000. That's a lot. That's a big win. Verse five, they found They found Adonai Bezek and Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and they caught, they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Adonai Bezek said 70 Kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick scraps under my table as I have done. So God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Now, cutting off the thumbs was significant back then because it meant that these warriors would never be able to hold a sword again. So they would never be able to fight again. So that's why they would do that. 
And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. So we see they begin to be obedient to what God has asked them to do. Now, in the next five verses, verse 10 to 15, it's almost identical to Joshua 15, 13 to 19. And so we see here that it's probably a flashback to this earlier capture of Hebron and Debir. Caleb offering Aksa as a prize to the victor. Aksa asked for springs of water in addition to the land because land without water was almost worthless. And so we remember that story um, that we read last week. Let's skip down to verse 18. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. I want you to take note of this line here. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb and Moses, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. So Judah captured three of the major Philistine cities, but he was not able to hold them. So they later reverted back to Philistine control. And it said he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Now, this speaks to the failure of the Israelites to drive the Canaanites out completely as God had instructed. And this was a root cause of Israel's apostasy and troubles. Since the three Philistine cities mentioned here in verse 18 were in the plain, must mean that the Israelites had no success beyond these cities, and perhaps they even lost control of them very quickly. So they had a success, but the success did not last. The Israelites did not have chariots, which were effective on the flat coastal plains, but were ineffective in the hill country of Canaan, where most of the Israelites had settled. Verse 21 says, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the, the Jesuits who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jesuits have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So here is a second notice about Israel's failure. And it previews a series of six identical notices in verse 27 to 36 that the Israelites were apparently satisfied with a comfortable home in a productive land and were not zealous to achieve God's full purpose for their life in the land. So I'm just going to highlight um, these failures that we see in these next few verses. Israel, The Israelites suffered more failures in the north after their initial success at Bethel. Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan did not drive out the Canaanites from their territories. And these territories fairly well spanned from the northern two-thirds of the promised land. And the effects of this were tragic. The Israelites turned to Baals, the gods of the Canaanites who remained among them and forsook the Lord. And thus Israel's worship did not remain pure. So we see here in verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. And 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back to the hill country, 
for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So what can we learn from these verses? The question we need to ask ourselves as we ponder this is, are we like the Israelites? Satisfied with a comfortable home in a productive land, yet we're not zealous to fully achieve God's full purposes for our life in the land that he has given us. What could this look like for us? Where have we walked in partial obedience? Where have we been given gifts and promises and freedom only to partner things that are not from God because they are comfortable, because they are known, or because they benefit us in some way, or maybe because everybody else is doing it? I wonder how much influence each of these tribes' disobedience had on the next tribe. As one tribe was disobedient and let the Canaanites stay in the land with them, the next tribe, it was okay for them, and then it was okay for them, and then it was okay for them. Let's go on to Judges chapter 2. We're going to start at Israel's disobedience, chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham. Please excuse my pronunciation if I'm not doing it right. I'm just reading it like I'm really confident, but I actually don't know if I'm pronouncing all of these names right. <laughs> and some of the ones we're going to get into here, uh, I don't know, I'm going to butcher pretty bad. So I apologize in advance. And he said to them, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Wow. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Now, this is God himself speaking to the people again directly. He's coming down and he is speaking to the people directly. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So God is now speaking plainly to the consequences of Israel's disobedience. He refers to their enemy as a thorn in their side and their gods as a snare. This is a powerful and accurate description of how sin and idols feel in our lives. Why do we continually do the things we do not want to do? The enemy of our soul is a continual thorn in our side. Interesting that the Apostle Paul references a thorn in his side as well in the New Testament. Why are we so tempted and enticed by idolatry? Why do we give created things our worship and devotion? These small G gods are a continual snare to us. And as humans, we are prone to wander. In the infamous hymn, and it says so powerfully, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. No truer words. No truer words have been sung. So God had commanded Israel to make no covenant with pagan nations and to tear down their altars. And as a consequence of Israel's disobedience, these nations would be a snare and a thorn to them, just as God had promised. And so the Israelites' apparent distress at God's threats, they begin to sacrifice there to God. And their attempts were literally just to pacify God by sacrificing to him. And these attempts were short-lived. 
and they show more of their usual pattern of apostasy. Let's skip down and continue reading at verse 11. Now watch as the pattern that we spoke about in the introduction begins right here. Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who are around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to their plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned them and the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Here we go. The Lord raises up judges. Verse 16. Then the Lord raises up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Oh Lord, bring conviction to our stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people, I want to just point out right here in verse 20, this people, I'm going to make a reference to that uh, later, have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So the judge's primary, although temporary, function was mostly military. They were provided for by the grace of God. The metaphor of horde um, is Israel's committing adultery against God by following other gods. And it's one of the most powerful uh, metaphors in the Old Testament. Israel's unfaithfulness was reprehensible to the God who had chosen, loved, and provided for his people. God graciously changed his course of action concerning the Israelites to give them over to their enemies because of his compassion for their suffering. Our God is a compassionate God. God raises up judges to save the people, prefiguring the sending of Christ. But the judge's help is only temporary. In verse 20, when God names again his people, this people, the original a Hebrew meaning. It's a word called goy. He was actually saying this nation. So he's saying this nation, a term normally reserved for pagans. The biblical writers usually refer to Israel as a people, a more intimate word. And the usage of this nation here is freighted with contempt and reflects the disgust that God feels towards his people, whom he now regards just like the other nations. 
I will no longer drive out any of the nation. This repeats the promise or threat that God has made to the Israelites, which is carried out to test Israel. Let's continue in Judges chapter three. We're wrapping up here. Verse one, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is in all Israel who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. And these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from the from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. They were there. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jezubites. Growing up in church, our pastor used to add the Jerryites and the Barbites. That's my mom and dad's name because our last name was Ites. So <laughs> he would always throw that in. And the church just thought that was so funny. <laughs> Whenever he'd be listing the Iteses, he called the Jerryites and the Barbites. <laughs> and their daughters, they took for themselves for wives and their own daughters, they gave to their sons and they served their gods. So this final section of the introduction emphasizes God's purposes in testing Israel and concludes with a confirmation that Israel indeed was apostate in this period. The stage is now set for the accounts of the individual judges, a significant number who were as much a part of Israel's problem as they were a source of their deliverance. So here we go as we begin to dive into the first three of the judges. Othniel, verse seven, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot their God and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, oh, okay, this one's a hard one, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, I'm just going to skip the second part of that name, for eight years. But when the people cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan, the king of Mesopotamia, in, into his hand. And, and his hand prevailed over Cushan, so the, re, so the land had rest for 40 years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So here we see the pattern begins, and the first judge um, rises up. Let's go to verse 12. And the people of Israel did again, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He had gathered to himself the Ammonites and the, the Amalekites and went out and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised them up for a deliverer. So Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And then it goes into... Um, a very explicit story about how he tricked getting into the presence of this king and stabbed him with a sword. And he was a very fat man and he, the sword disappeared into all his fatness. And then lots, some bodily fluids came out and he died there and then he escaped. It was, it's a very detailed, um, very, very, <laughs> it's got, yeah, grotesque story. 
Let's skip down to verse 28. So after he does this sort of tricky, um, by killing the king of Moab, he comes back and he says to them, follow after me. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they went down after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at the time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all of the strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So this surprising judge prefigures the surprising character of the self of salvation in Christ, which seemed to the world to be weakness. So cool. All right. And there's one last one here, Shamgar. And there's just one line said about Shamgar. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. The interesting thing about Shamgar, this third judge, is he's only mentioned here and in chapter five, verse six, and Shamgar's name is apparently Hurian. So he's not Israel. He's not an Israelite. And his designation as a son of Anath probably refers to a Canaanite warrior goddess Anath. So if so, this is ironic that God would use a non-Israelite, actually a Canaanite warrior to deliver Israel from its enemies. Shamgar's activity is single-handedly killing many Philistines is anticipating the judge Samson that is to come in our story. This story about Shamgar reminds us that God is favorable to all who call him Lord, regardless of birth. Shamgar was called of God because he served Yahweh. And just like Rahab and Ruth, there's a place for all who believe. God is most concerned about the death that idolatry brings to our souls because his created plan for us is one of life everlasting. Anything that threatens the covenant prompt, that covenant promise needs to be eradicated from our lives because it will ultimately lead to our destruction anyways. We're just going to take a moment and close in prayer, and then we can dive into some discussion together. Lord God, we want to thank you for your mercy towards us, your mercy that we see in these chapters that we have read today. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness towards us. We thank you that you desire life for us. We thank you that you're gracious towards us and that you're continually leading us towards complete freedom from anything that desires to destroy us. Help us, O Lord, to abide in your word and to know the truth so that the truth can set us free.